the last episode of Radium and Roses, we heard about Johns Hopkins' efforts to cover up the effects of the nasal radium treatment that we learned my grandfather had received as a child. We also heard about the large number of submariners and U.S. military members who also received the treatment. In this episode, you'll hear more about the history of the use of the treatment on submariners and U.S. military members, along with more of the history of what happened in the mid-1990s as Stuart Farber worked tirelessly to bring attention to this issue. To begin this episode, I want to return to the March 12, 1996 testimony that Stuart Farber gave before the Senate Committee on Governmental Affairs. Committee Chairman Ted Stevens, Senator of Alaska, says in his opening statement that this was the third in a series of hearings undertaken by the committee to examine the progress that the government had made to identify and catalog the many radiation experiments carried out in our nation involving human subjects and to establish an effective set of policies and procedures to protect our citizens from dangerous and unethical research practices. He goes on to say that last October in 1995, the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, or ACRE, presented their report to the administration. To remind you, this is the report that considered the 1948 study at Johns Hopkins to be therapeutic experimentation. Senator Stevens mentions the 18 recommendations that ACRE made in their report, and he says that today, or at that 1996 hearing, their intention was to discover what progress had been made in terms of implementing Aker's recommendations. So Stuart Farber's testimony, of course, tells the story of how he had to put continued pressure on Aker to even mention the issue of nasal radium irradiation. And then, of course, he was not satisfied with how they actually addressed the issue. Because the committee declined to recommend medical notice and follow-up for those who had been treated with NRI. That encompasses the three main points of Stuart Farber's 1996 testimony. One says that NRI human radiation experiments would never have been addressed by Aker if it had not been forced to do so by scientists and citizens outside of the government, such as himself. Two, the acre risk analysis for NRI is flawed. Three, acre's findings and recommendations for no notice, no follow-up related to NRI are without merit scientifically, medically, and ethically. Due to acre's error, lifetime risk of head and neck cancers has been underestimated by a factor of 1.9. In the 1996 testimony, Stewart says that in late 1993, following DOE revelations about the breadth of these human radiation experiments, and in particular the number of people potentially affected by nasal radium irradiation, he began even further efforts to address the issue. In January of 1994, he was able to interest Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut and the nasal radium irradiation of Navy submariners in Connecticut by the Naval Medical Research Lab. Farber says that in January 
1994, Lieberman raised the nasal radium issue at a hearing of the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Lieberman was able to receive some general commitments from the VA that it would investigate the issue and possibly notify exposed veterans about potential health problems associated with the treatments. But up until that point in 1996, the VA had failed to provide any notice to any veterans, whether exposed experimentally or subsequently as standard medical practice from 1946 into the 1960s. In July of 1994, Farber authored a news release and review on behalf of a veteran group called the Submarine Survivors Group. Um, the review regarded the initial use of NRI on submariners in Groton, Connecticut by the Navy and Army Air Force um, on aviators across bases across the U.S. and in Europe, a total of about 7,613 individuals. This review provided documentation that NRI was initially a human radiation experiment by the admission of Navy and Army ENTs involved in the experimental use of NRI. Farber says that the 1994 press release for the sub submarine survivors group was faxed to the Acre Committee and it, that it included quotes from a 1946 medical journal which described that of 6,149 Navy trainees evaluated in the initial study at the Navy's Medical Research Laboratory in New London, Connecticut during 1945 to 1946, 732 experimental Navy subjects received a course of four 10-minute irradiations on average estimated with a range of two to eight irradiations in each nostril of radium irradiation. Farber says that Aker ignored the NRI issue up until 1995. Here he is speaking on the issue in April of 2020. And it, it, the advisory committee, you know, grudgingly, incredibly grudgingly took up the, um, the, any consideration of the nasal radium, which when they did, you know, that, but it was actually the one experiment that they wrote into their report, but in a way that was incredibly deceitful. They broke it up, put it in different sections of their uh, report, made it almost impossible to realize what in the world are they talking about? Because they, you know, it was a deliberate, attempt to minimize it, uh, not really address it. As a direct result of Stewart's efforts, Senator Lieberman held a U.S. Senate hearing on the issue titled Assessing the Effects of Nasal Radium Treatments. This hearing was held before the Subcommittee on Clean Air and Nuclear Regulation of the Committee on Environment and Public Works of the U.S. Senate on August 29th of 1994. Stewart testified at the hearing as a radiation risk assessment specialist. In April of 2020, Stewart sent me a copy of this 1994 testimony. Now I want to turn for a few minutes to that 1994 testimony because it gives us a good sense of why Stewart was pursuing this issue at the time. He says, I am trained as a public health and environmental scientist, having received an MS in public health air pollution control from the University of Massachusetts School of Public Health, 1973, following several years of professional work experience as an R&D organic chemist. 
I received an AB in chemistry from Brown University in 1967 and subsequently completed graduate medical coursework in genetics, biostatistics, and biochemistry at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. Stewart says he became aware of NRI through two of his co-workers who had received NRI from a new London, Connecticut-based private physician. He says that his friend, Mike, received the treatment in 1966 as a recreational scuba diver while working for General Dynamics as a test engineer. His friend was treated by a Dr. Henry L. Haynes, a former Navy captain who Stuart had found through his literature search, who had developed the procedure for the U.S. Naval Medical Research Laboratory submarine program during World War II as a young Navy captain. Stuart Farber says that his friend was referred to the private ENT practice of Dr. Haynes because he had used the radium irradiation treatment for people who were having trouble equalizing pressure underwater. The second coworker of Stuart Farber's received radium treatments as a child growing up in New London during the 1950s also from Dr. Haynes, for adenoid or middle ear problems common in young children, for which radium nasal irradiation was being commonly used by an estimated 1,000 to 2,000 physicians across the U.S. at the time. In the 1994 testimony, Stuart Farber says that he surveyed the literature and that it was quickly evident to him in a reading of some of the open medical literature that this procedure became the treatment of choice from 1945 onward for the U.S. Navy. In that 1994 testimony, Farber says that it's possible to estimate a cohort numbering approximately 10,000 ex-Navy submariners received the treatment as a consequence of their initial training in Groton, Connecticut, he goes on to say that all irradiations were administered with a commercially available standardized Monel metal irradiator with a 50 milligram radium equivalent and following the irradiation protocol developed by Dr. Haynes and his Navy medical associates. Now, there's a complex history here that does connect the use of the treatment on submariners to the 1948 study at Johns Hopkins, but we'll get into that in next week's episode. To return to the 1996 testimony, Stewart describes how he had to put pressure on Aker to address the NRI issue. He also says that their analysis of the risk of NRI was flawed, and that Aker's recommendation for no notice, no follow-up for NRI-treated individuals was without merit. In both the 1994 and 1996 testimony, Stuart Farber refers to the one and only follow-up study at that point in time, studying the after-effects of the treatment. It was a PhD thesis completed by a Dr. Dale Sandler at Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. It's called The Health Consequences of Nasopharyngeal Radium Exposure. The main result is that there's an overall statistically significant increase in benign and malignant tumors of the head and neck 
among the irradiated patients compared to the non-irradiated. That cohort that Sandler studied in 1979 into 1980 is the same cohort that Ye studied in her 1997 dissertation. So by the 1980s, Johns Hopkins knew about the effects of the treatment. By 1997, Hopkins definitely knew about the effects of the treatment. By 2001, Hopkins was trying to minimize the risk associated with the treatment. By 2005, Stuart Farber had retired from the issue to use his words in frustration and disgust. And by June of 2019, I lost my grandfather. On June 19th, 2019, nearly a year exactly after his diagnosis, Ronald Robert Rose Sr. died of the brain cancer that he developed after being exposed to radium as a child through an experimental treatment meant to cure him of his allergies or of hearing loss. At the beginning of the week, Lynn called my mom to tell her that the nurse had said it would be probably 24 to 48 hours before he passed. My mom asked me once again if I would go with her on short notice to North Carolina. My mom and I were there along with my uncles Ron and Steve. On the 19th, my grandfather's sister, Carol, decided that she would drive down from Maryland to be there as well. I'd never experienced anything quite like it. Passing the time, waiting for someone to die. Late that night, Carol and her husband finally arrived from Maryland. I had gone into the guest room to lay down and try and get some sleep. I don't know what time it was when my mom came to wake me up to tell me that he had passed. It turns out that Carol had been there visiting with him for less than 10 minutes before he finally took his last breath. It was strange, as if he was waiting for her. Now, I'd seen a dead body before, but made up at the funeral parlor. Never like that. Never a figure that loomed so large in my life, made so small, in his old bay pajamas that we had likely gifted him for Christmas. I think it was after midnight when the funeral home finally took him away. I'd see him one last time at the funeral home before he was cremated. At that point, and at this point, my family is pretty spread out. So it seemed impossible for our family to gather in North Carolina the week that he died. We decided on a date in August for his memorial weekend. And that weekend, we all gathered in a historic house in downtown Waynesville, North Carolina. We spread his ashes on the mountain where he'd lived with Lynn for so many years. We spread them by the creek where he had smoked many a pipe and drank many a whiskey by the fire. 
the creek where my cousins and I played as children, where we would look for rubies because our grandfather told us that we could find them there, where I had stacked rocks two days after he died, a testament to all that I would build in my grandfather's memory. Now, all that we've discovered about NRI, about the use of the treatment on U.S. military members and the use of the treatment on children, knowing that he had received this treatment didn't change the ultimate outcome. But had he been made aware earlier on about the risks that he faced as someone who had received this treatment, he would have had earlier screenings of his head and neck Had the CDC or Johns Hopkins or someone announced in, say, 2001 that people who received NRI were at risk for cancer, maybe a doctor would have found my grandfather's brain tumor before it was the size of a lemon, when it was still operable. And the thing that I keep coming back to is that this is no longer a story about my grandfather. This is a story about the risk that 500,000 to 2 million people are unaware that they're facing. So this story doesn't end with my grandfather's death. The story continues today in 2020, as my mom and I continue to research about the history of the treatment and the doctors who pioneered it and used it on so many young people, completely ignoring the potential risks. Doctors who, ultimately, decades later, are protected by the reputation of an institution complicit in covering up the effects of the treatment. Tune in to episode 5 to hear more about this history, which we found the deeper you dig into it, the more disturbing it becomes. The theme music for this episode is the song Mama Said by Cat Clyde. <laughs>